Luke 15, 1 through 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and he goes after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he calls home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're in this series called Short Stories by Jesus, and this morning we're doing uh, actually three parables, three little stories that you're probably pretty familiar with. But I want to start off with a different story, one that you're also familiar with, and Jesus didn't tell it. It starts off in Scripture. It's the story of Cain and Abel. So early on in Scripture, after the story of Adam and Eve, there's a story of Cain and Abel. They're two brothers. They're the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain tills the ground, he grows crops, he, he brings forth produce, and Abel is a shepherd. He raises some kind of livestock, and the two of them bring their offerings before the Lord, and for some reason God finds favor in Abel's offering, but not in Cain's. And despite a warning from, from God to Cain that his heart was off, and that sin was coming after him, it was at his door and its desire was to, to, to rule over Cain, Cain in anger goes and kills his brother Abel. And so God asks Cain a very very simple question. He says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain responds with a very infamous line. He says, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? That's a question that if you understand what's going on in the story of Cain and Abel and how it's really meant to form the nation of Israel and the people of Yahweh, you realize this is a question that every follower of Yahweh is meant to meditate on. Am I my brother's keeper? It isn't just a recording. It isn't just a simple statement that was written down. It's actually meant to be a question that we ponder over. Are we our brother's keeper? And even in the New Testament, as Jesus appears, and he begins to show Israel how they were meant to look, he begins to demonstrate to Israel what true faithfulness to Yahweh looks like. This question of, am I my brother's keeper, is running throughout his interactions with everyone. And especially in his conflicts with the religious leaders. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. We're not going to go through them. Uh, I'm not going to read through the stories, but I want to invite you to turn there. I'm going to reference a few things um, as we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. 
And so we have three stories. The first two you've probably heard told together a lot of times. It's the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin. And you've probably heard them taught together, the two short stories. And then we have a third story that you've probably heard most times told by itself. But I want to start off in looking at the context that Luke gives us in verses 1 and 2. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to, to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Luke describes the general situation that's going on at this point. He doesn't really give us any markers. like any, We don't know what city this is in. We don't know an exact moment. But we kind of have an idea when in Jesus' ministry this is going on. And he's probably telling us a story of something that happened and describing uh, the whole tone. So this is most definitely happened, but he's describing what's going on in a bigger sense, in this ongoing conflict between the, the religious leaders and Jesus. And Jesus, we're told that the religious leaders are grumbling because Jesus is receiving these tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is practicing this intimate act of eating with these people who not only break the law of Moses, but they also have been basically become traitors to Israel, specifically in the tax collectors. And so what do the religious leaders do? They grumble. Now, not lost on Luke's readers should be the fact that there's another famous grumbling that has gone on in Israel's history. When, when Israel was brought out of, out of Egypt and they were brought through the Red Sea and they were delivered by Yahweh and they were brought into the wilderness, what did the people of God do? What did the religious leaders do over and over and over again? To Yahweh. They grumbled. And so even, that, even though that they had seen God's mighty work at hand, even though they had experienced the deliverance of Yahweh, they grumbled. And what happened to that generation? It never actually entered the promised land. And so here you have the religious leaders of Israel. Here you have Jesus, and he's performing miracles, and he's speaking with authority, And God's mighty hand is on display again. And what is Israel doing but grumbling one more time? And there's a warning there. These leaders are in danger of not going where they need to go with Jesus. And so Jesus tells them these parables. These two stories that we're going to start with. And you heard them read to you. It's a story of a shepherd who loses a sheep. He's got 90, he's got 100, one of them goes off, he leaves the 99, he goes and he finds the one and he comes back, he invites his friends to rejoice because what was lost is now found. And then he tells a story of a woman, a widow, who loses one of ten gold coins as she spends her, she cleans up the whole house, she searches diligently and she finds it and she calls her friends and says, come rejoice with me for this precious thing I have was lost and now it's found. And there's a couple interesting things about these these stories. The first is that the Pharisees probably don't like being compared to either a shepherd or a woman. Culturally, they don't. So even though we have like these fond biblical images of shepherds, and it's true that it's used throughout the Old Testament to represent things, actually by this time in culture, it really was a dirty, filthy job that wasn't really for anybody of any status. And this is not my view, so don't stone me, but women were not regarded well, especially by the Pharisees, right? There's some famous texts, thank God I'm not a woman, and uh, that's what the text says, that's not me. (laughs) So Jesus is being a bit provocative here, 
And he also starts off with this phrasing, which one of you wouldn't? He basically uses this phrase to suggest, well, of course you would. Which one of you, if you were a shepherd? Which one of you, if you were a woman, wouldn't act in this way? And so it's kind of like me saying, which one of you, if you're eating a bag of, of Oreos in this service, and one fell, and because this floor is so stinking sloped, it rolled down to the front, hit the wall, stopped, you wouldn't get up, run down here, grab the Oreo, interrupt me and say, brothers and sisters, rejoice with me, for my Oreo that was lost is now found. Let us partake together. Amen. Now, Jesus obviously tells better stories than I do, right? And some of you are like, I don't eat Oreos. That sounds like your problem. Actually, the new thin ones are fantastic. I've never been an Oreo fan. My wife brought home these thin ones, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they finally solved the problem for me, right? And you realize, you realize, you go, dude, I don't eat Oreos. I certainly wouldn't, I certainly would not behave that way. And Jesus goes, exactly. That's how extravagant God's love is for those that are found. You wouldn't. He says, which one of you? And they go, well, we wouldn't. Exactly. That's how extravagant the response is of our Father to those things that were lost now being found. Exactly. Jesus tells these stories not just to give the Pharisees a hard time, but make a couple of points. God's rejoicing over the lost being found is extravagant. Yahweh rejoices greatly when people who are far from him return to him. And they should too. This isn't just a, a, a way of describing, here's what God's like and let's study him. This is not, No, that's what God's like and that's what you should be like too. That's what you should be like too. And then to really drive home the point, Jesus tells a third story. And this is the one that you've probably hold, told, you've heard told by itself, but he tells a story. He says, which one of you having two, or he says, not sorry, that's the other stories. He says, there was a rich man who had two sons. And the younger son came to him and he said, father, give me my inheritance. I want it now. And the father, being fairly insulted but generous, gives his son what's coming to him, and the son takes it. And it says he goes off and he lives, he lives a reckless life in the city, squandering it on inappropriate things. And you can, I think it says prostitutes in there, so you can just kind of get the idea of the lifestyle he wants to live. And he basically ends up broke. And at that time, there's a severe famine that breaks out. And so the son, this younger son, having lived a reckless life, having squandered his father's generous gift, finds himself so poor and destitute that he's feeding pigs again, a, a, a provocative image for the people of Israel. The idea that this person would be feeding pigs is so unclean, so, so gross. But the son is there, he's feeding pigs, and he doesn't even eat as well as they do. And so he somewhat comes to his senses and he says, wait a minute, the people who my father hire, my father hires, are so much better off just as servants. And so I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask my father, look, I don't need to be your son, just hire me as your servant. And so we pick it up in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. This is the younger son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and bring a ring on his, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate again. This father, just like the shepherd, just like the widow, they have an over-the-top exuberance that what was lost is now found. I mean, these stories of of these people's reactions seem a little over the top, don't they? There's a woman who is so excited about finding something that's lost that she's going to basically throw a party. And this guy who finds a sheep, good for him, but he's calling all his friends. And now this, this father who lost all this money, who, who basically deserved a lot more, he's going to celebrate. He's going to spend these lavish gifts on his son. And it's interesting in the story, we're so removed from it, but there's so many social norms that are broken. Like a man of dignity doesn't run out to his son. And it, we don't think of this, in an, in a, we're, we don't live really in an honor-shame culture, although we're moving that way. But there's a lot of shame that the son brought on the family. And there's a whole lot of repentance and apologizing that needs to go on. And so a very dignified father would wait for that process to happen before he, he, he allowed the son to, to be back in the family. The son has brought immense shame. This father doesn't even let the son get a full apology out. Before he's really done any kind of penance, he's, he's bestowing gifts on him, giving him back the honor that he he had in the first place and celebrating with him. It's a spare no expense kind of celebration that costs the father richly because of the son returning to his rightful place in the family. He's so elated that his son has come back that there's no expense spared. And I, I had a, we were in prayer this morning and I wanted to throw out that some of you might relate to that, that son. Some of you might relate to, to the younger son. Some of you might relate to the lost sheep or the lost coin, maybe the tax collector, maybe a sinner. And, and I want to give you an invitation this morning that that's God's response to you coming to him. That is who you're going to be met with. That kind of father. That kind of love. And I'm not just talking about people who profess no faith or who've never put their faith in Jesus, but if you sense that you, this is you and you're coming back to God, that's the response you're going to receive. But in this story, Jesus adds another section, this third story. So the first one was quick, the second one was quick, but the third one's a lot more fleshed out. He adds another section. This time there's another person responding. Look in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that's the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And it's pretty easy to see what's going on here. 
Jesus is receiving and eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are grumbling. And their response is basically like the eldest brother. The eldest son is angry, standing outside, grumbling, not joining in this party, not joining in with the father. And Jesus paints that as a picture to basically say, look, this is who you are. And if you look at these three stories together, this is important to get this morning. If you look at these three stories together, the indictment against the older son, what's wrong with the older son is not that he doesn't look like the younger son. It's that he doesn't look like the father. So we've read these stories a lot of times, especially the story as, well, which son are you? And the story is not told to say, well, don't be like the elder son, be like the younger son. The story is said to the elder son, no, you don't look like your dad. You don't look like your father. This is the way that we receive people back. This is what it looks like to look like Yahweh. God's compassionate character has been on display throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now God's character is on display in Jesus. Jesus shows them and us what the father looks like. And that was the call of Israel all along. Israel has always been called to look like Yahweh and to demonstrate Yahweh's character to the nations. And that goes back to the question we started with. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. Absolutely you are. And those are your brothers and sisters. That's them. Jesus is saying, these are your brothers and sisters and you're not keeping them. These are the people that you're responsible for and you're not keeping them. They were to treat their brothers and sisters the same way that Yahweh would treat them. And the same is true true of us. We're We're called to be keepers of our brothers and sisters. We are called to look like Yahweh. To rejoice deeply at the finding of the lost and to rejoice deeply at people returning to the rightful place in the family of God. So that brings up a handful of questions for us this morning that I just want to throw out. And the first one is this. Do I have a sense of keeping? Do I have a sense of keeping? Now, that's not just anybody in a sense. But let me put it this way. I don't want you to overlook the person sitting next to you. The people sitting in this room, we have a responsibility to one another. You know, you look at the, test, the, the, the testimony of the New Testament, specifically in Acts. It says that they're... They're sharing, and no one is going without. If you look at the, let me give you a, a clue to, to interpreting the New Testament. When you look at stories like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, and even some other stories of Noah and these different things, if you, even the Tower of Babel, you look at these, you're like, what is this in here? And then you come to the New Testament, and what you're oftentimes going to see is that they're doing in the New Testament what Israel was always called to do. And so this little comment about, about sharing and no one going without is this amazing response to the question that was posed in Genesis. Am I my brother's keeper? And what does it look like in the church? Absolutely we are brothers and sisters keepers. And you know what? Like I've seen that done in this church. Um, and, and specifically two communities came, came to mind. Like I, and it was, I was thinking about Home Forever being up here and people who say 
Like, we need to support one another. We need to make sure that we're not going with, that people aren't going without. I think of the, the Love's Gift Foster Closet, which says, look, if you're going to keep another human being, if you're going to be your brothers and sisters keeper to that child, like, we're going to make sure we keep you. The other community I thought of that does this so well is, is the addiction community, those in recovery. They say, look, you're ultimately responsible for your own sobriety, but we're going to be invested in that, and as much as you want help, it's yours. We have a responsibility to keep each other. Those of us going through financial challenges, those of us going through, going through emotional challenges, those of us going through needs, like we look at each other and we say, look, you, I'm not, God is ultimately responsible for you, and you have a responsibility yourself, but you're also my responsibility. You're my brother and sister. But then it does move out. It moves out into our neighborhoods, into our communities. It moves out into the places we work. And we look at those people we pass on the, on the, on the road or those people that I yell at. My daughter has started yelling, Come on, dude, in the car. And so I realized that maybe there's an issue there. <laughs> the best is when mom gets in the car and they're like, Mom, daddy always says this. Um, all those people that we interact with, like, I, you know, there's people that we don't even see in our own city. We're called to keep them as human beings. We're actually called to be responsible for humanity. And that's a big task. That's a huge task. I was in a class at Regent College this summer with a brilliant guy. I was falling asleep, right? But I caught this one thing he said. It was, it was a good class. Um, a little unfair, I'd spent all day, all morning with my kids, and I'd go into this air-conditioned room in Vancouver and listen to this guy lecture, so it wasn't totally his fault. But he gets to the part of Matthew 28, and he says, you know, we hear that, go and make disciples of all nations, and we often interpret that to say, I need to, we need to go and make eight, at least one disciple in every nation. And he says, you know, I'm not sure Scripture teaches that. I actually think we're called to disciple the nations. And someone raised their hand, like, what's the difference? He goes, well, that's a lot harder. And we let ourselves off the hook sometimes. I'm like, dang. Like we actually do have a responsibility to the cities that we live in. We all live in many different cities around here. It's not just Long Beach. But we actually have a responsibility to keep our neighbors, those in need, and specifically those who don't know, don't know God, don't know Yahweh, and aren't experiencing the life that Jesus offers. God wants to use us. He calls us into the family to look like him and to be his instruments. So do we have a sense of keeping? Second question of this. Some of you are going to roll your eyes at me. Does the keeping cost me something? All right, here comes the money talk. And I've had many of you somehow come up to me and congratulate. Oh, I'm so glad that we raised all that money. I didn't think we'd do it. Oh, Thanks. And they said, you know, we've heard a lot about money. I, and I realize I've gotten typecast as the money guy, which is much better than being typecast as the fat guy who likes meat. So I'm down with that, right? I feel like that's a progression and definitely a better career arc, right? Like, although cooking well might keep me around longer. But I'm not going to belabor this point, but every story it costs. Every story that Jesus Jesus told us. And here, let me put this out. This isn't just my fixation. Luke 15, these three stories. What's Luke 16? Jesus goes off on money. Immediately, the next part is he rails on the Pharisees for their unwise, unstewarding use of money. And it says that the Pharisees who loved money basically got angry at Jesus. He goes right after their pocketbooks. So I'm just going to teach scripture. 
I'm serious. Like, we, it has to cost us something. And, and, and the, the other aspect of that, too, is it's not just money, it's time. Like, we're so busy, and our money is so spent, we have no margin when an opportunity to keep people comes along. We live a lifestyle that everything is so spoken for before the check ever comes that the opportunity to give generously and freely is not there. And then when, when the opportunity does come, we actually feel like someone's demanding of us something that we don't, we don't have. And so what's our reaction? Back off. Get away from me. You're trying to take from me. No. God is inviting you to partner with him. And if you've already given your money and your time away to everything else, maybe you should be angry at that. There's an opportunity for us to partner, but if we have no margin in our life, and some of us are going through real financial challenges. Some of us are going through real demands on our time. We're taking care of an elderly parent. We're taking care of a kid with with needs. We're really giving. So I'm not talking about that, but do we have margin of time that isn't and money that isn't spent on us and our desires? That's a question to ask because it keeps us from having an, an idea of keeping others. When my neighbor comes over and I'm rushing around, I don't want to talk to him. We're going to get to here, we're going to do this, we're going to... And I realize that I have neighbors who want to come over and just talk to me because they don't have... It's amazing. We have some friends who aren't in the church and they're like, you guys are so busy. And I realize we're spending time with great people. We're spending time with great people. You guys. They want that. They don't experience that. Are we willing to make, make space in our lives to invite them into community that brings life? Lastly, I'm going to throw out this last question here. Would I throw a party? So if you experience someone in your life actually coming and putting their faith in Jesus and, and, and having a relationship with God, would you be so excited about it that you would actually throw a party? Because in every one of these stories, that's the picture that Jesus paints of Yahweh. And I've actually seen it here. I've seen, I've seen people, specifically a group of, of young women, reach out to their friend for so long, be praying for their friend, inviting others to pray for their friend, that when their friend finally did put their faith in Jesus, they celebrated. That was a cool, that was a cool thing to watch from the sideline. But you have to ask, what do I celebrate? What am I fixated on and I'm so excited about? What is the enthusiasm of my life? Yesterday morning, we had to go somewhere. My wife was we were trying to go over some friends and, and do some, some good things. And what did I wake up and do? Okay, this is going to typecast me again. But I shopped for a smoker. I really want a new smoker, right? And the enthusiasm in my life to purchase a smoker, something that could at least 16 square feet of cooking space and water pan, all kinds of <laughs> wheels. In all honesty, like, I spend more time thinking about possibly buying a plug-in hybrid, getting solar in my house, or buying a new smoker than I do looking at my neighbors and saying, man, like, they're not experiencing the life of Jesus, and that breaks my heart. And this isn't like a condemnation morning. This is an invitation for us to sit there and ask, what is the heart of God, and do we, do we want to be transformed into that? This is not me telling you what I'm good at, and this is not me encouraging you to go door-to-door and do evangelism. 
This is me asking you, do we, myself included, want to be transformed into people whose heart is like Yahweh's? Thanks, John. And that's a big question. That's a big question for us to wrestle with. Do we want that in our lives? You know, I think that we, this is one thing I want to draw out for those of us who grew in the church. If you didn't grow up in the church, you probably aren't familiar with the term legalism. But a lot of us came out of a, 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 a Christianity that looked like, hey, you're supposed to follow the rules, and anybody who didn't was just bad, and, and we looked down on people. And we heard the story spoken to us many times to not be like the elder brother that was legalistic. And so the fact is, I've seen the American church move out of legalism, but that doesn't mean we've moved into looking like the father. So my, my fear is in, in, in this, when we read the story, that we can say, yeah, I don't look like that older brother. I got it. But the challenge is really way more profound than that. Because in my own life, I have to be honest and say, there are a lot of times in my life I don't look like the dad. I don't look like the shepherd. I don't look like the woman who lost the coin. And I want to throw this out this morning. You're like, how do I practically do this? And I want to land on this. I want to invite you in a season when a lot of us are super busy. Our kids start in kindergarten. That's, we've got more meetings in, for the public school now than I know what to do with. Um, we've got all kinds of things going on. We've got people we want to connect with, all kinds of... It's, it's a busy season, right? You're getting in that last vacation. Here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to reframe your prayer life. So A, some of you just said that means start one. But I want to invite you to spend the next several weeks reframing your prayer life to simply being, God, if this is your character, I want to be more like you. That's it. I want to spend time inviting you to make me more like you because if that is your character, you'll make that come out in me. That's not another thing to add to your schedule. That's not another thing to do that you have. That's not more money you have to give. That's not something else you have to sign up for. But I want to invite you very t- to do this simple act, and that is to be praying regularly. God, I'm looking at the picture that you paint. I'm looking at the picture of Jesus. And I want you to work in me to make that more like you. And that's, that's a scary thing to pray, but it's also a simple thing. So I'm not trying to burden everyone this morning. But I want to give us something practically that we could do to where we would look and say, when I walk out of my door, I look at people and say, hey, those are my brothers and sisters. And when things come up, I say, you know what? I do want to invest in that because that's important. And when I do see God work, I, I want to throw a party. See, that to me is a pretty cool person. That's a picture of a pretty cool person that I want to be like. So let me pray that for us this morning. Father, we, we want to look like you. We want to, look like, we want to be your children. And children want to look like their father when their father is good. And you are good. So I pray that this morning that you would would work in us, that you would give us, um, I think, an extra sense of your spirit in our lives uh, throughout the next several weeks, that you could open our eyes to see the spaces that you want to work through us, the the ways that you want to work in us, and that you, you will, um, your spirit will remind us that you desire to shape in us um, you, and that we would give ourselves over freely. 
So I pray in the next several weeks that we would be reminded each day to spend our time with you and to step into that, into that, uh, that posture of receiving from you in order that you can be glorified as we spend our time with others. Yeah, may you be glorified this morning. Amen.